Here we are, talking about coaching, special issue psychedelics. I've been wanting to do this for quite a while to, uh, you know, start talking to people about coaching and psychedelics and how they could, could work together. And then we've met. And the idea is that we uh, have a series of conversations with coaches who are practicing in the space of psychedelics, who work with psychedelics, either helping clients to get something out of their psychedelic experience or help clients who had an experience to integrate them and just kind of explore what's going on in that space. So I'm Heather, thank you so much for being here with me. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Thank you. So I am a new coach. I'm just starting out. I've been a nurse for 13 years maybe now. While healthcare in the United States is not really about the patient getting better or improving. And I really wanted to find a space for me to work with people one-on-one to, to be able to get healthier or improve their lives or become happier. And I am someone that wasn't happy and have learned how to do that, to take care of myself. And now it's become a passion of mine to help other people get there. Because I think in at least my society where we are, it's we're not really encouraged to do that. And so for me, being in a more positive place with people and getting them to where they want to be. And I think psychedelics are a really good fast track to be there. That's why kind of this came up in the first place is how are other people using them as coaches? Because I think they are unique way. I mean, we see them in therapy a lot here and other environments, but for coaching, I think it's a really unique place. Especially now, it's, I think it's a really unique place because there's been a substantial amount of research in the past 15 years. I mean, the research was dead for like 40 years. And then in 2004, I think was the first uh, study by Griffith or on Griffith around uh, using psychedelics for depression uh, or rather against depression. Um, but that kind of uh, kicked off a whole, a whole renaissance of research. And uh, it's been incredibly fascinating what's come out of it. I mean, it's mind-blowing, really, from a scientist's standpoint, the kind of results that that one sitting with psychedelics with some therapy before and after has helped people treat, hard to treat depression, like hard treatment-resistant depression. They had incredible results with smoking cessation, taking death anxiety away for late-stage cancer patients. And for me, it was like, whoa, on a scientific perspective, that's incredible. That's literally incredible. And so um, then I started reading some of the papers and particularly one that by a couple of colleagues from Berlin, Andrea and Hendrik Jungabele, uh, they looked at all the positive psychology uh, concepts that have been reported within psychedelic research. And I, given that I have a background in positive psychology, that was fascinating because they, they reported all of these uh, side effects, so to speak, of like uh, more happiness and life satisfaction and, you know, being more mindful, more open, inside growth. Um, so the positive psychologist and the coach in me is like, oh my God. So it's not just, it's not just feel the healing and fixing problems. It's also growth and development and going beyond that, which is what positive psychology and coaching are about. You know, it's not about necessarily fixing problems, but learning, development, growth, insight. So yeah, it's a fascinating space to be in because right now we're still exploring it. There's no rules or guidelines. Um, there's coaches out there who are practicing and this is why we're talking um, because I, I think it's important that we learn from each other because clients will not wait until they do psychedelics or they use them for personal growth. You know, there's so many people who are not suffering from PTSD who want to use those substances for personal growth and development and they, they'll either do it on their own 
or they get some support. And I think it's better that they have some support. And while the guidelines are still not clear and the science will probably take five, 10 years to kind of catch up with the coaching and psychedelics, I think it's important that coaches ask themselves, how can we do this kind of support and offer it safely and ethically and legally? I mean, for me, I really do feel like they saved my life and I did not have a structured environment with it. I just can't imagine like when you do combine the two, like how extremely powerful that can be. The studies have shown that for decades longer, you attribute, you know, your positive mentality or your change in thought process due to those psychedelic experiences. Yeah. And I mean, this is what as a coach I'm really interested in because sometimes it has a lasting effect for years, decades, months, at least weeks. And some people, they have these amazing experiences and they come back from an ayahuasca session or a psychedelic trip somewhere, um, an experience in a retreat center, or, you know, uh, I know many people just do that with friends, um, but they come back from this experience and they have all of these insights and this energy and these ideas. And then you meet them two months later and and nothing really has changed and the afterglow has kind of worn off and they've fallen back into old structures and habits. And I think this is where the integration work is so powerful because uh, especially with, with coaching, it, it helps you to take some insights that you've had and integrate them into your life in practical ways. And that's what, what coaches do, not just with psychedelic experience, but with any kind of experiences or learning. It's hard. I mean, we live these crazy lives. I mean, now it's a little different with COVID, but we're going to work every day, we're in the commute every day. And so it is really easy to lose track of the things that you learn the inspiration that you had during those times. And that's why I do believe there are such a good marriage with coaching because it does help you keep that mainframe and continue to make change. You've got some questions, right? And this is why we started talking. You're like, well, I, I'm curious about a bunch of things. And we've talked briefly before we meet here and what would be useful to ask coaches who are practicing in this space. I'll just let you be the guide of this conversation and ask me anything you like. Worst case scenario, say I don't want to talk about that, but uh, I'm generally a quite an open book. Well, thank you. And if I don't talk about anything that you think is important, let's bring that up as well. I'd like to just hear about your current coaching practice, what that looks like, how you incorporate psychedelic medicines and, and what you are today with your practice. I came from positive psychology, as I mentioned earlier, briefly. I've done a master's in, in positive, in applied positive psychology. That's how I found coaching. And I've always been interested in the intersection or in the gray area, the space between coaching and therapy. So um, initially was interested in therapy and counseling, and then I found coaching and it kind of resonated a lot more with me. Because I, I had a lot more freedom, uh, you tend to work in therapy, you tend to work with people who uh, feel unable to cope or who feel a bit broken or, you know, who are at, a, at their wits end in how to move on. I know there's a lot of people also who go to therapy because they want to explore themselves at depth, which I absolutely appreciate. And I think in maybe in America, it's more common than in the UK. In the UK, it's certainly you go see a therapist, you have some, some deep seated issues and uh, you really need to do something about it. It's not generally something that people just pursue out of curiosity. So I gelled with coaching, but I wanted to go deeper. A lot of the positive psychologists that I had met were really positive, perhaps a little bit too positive for my taste. And I needed an approach to coaching that would appreciate the challenges that life throws at you on a daily basis. And, you know, all the shit that people experience, all the pain and suffering and the meaninglessness and the uncertainty and the inner conflicts, the dilemmas, the paradoxes we carry as part of our human condition. So that's how I found existentialism. And uh, I was lucky enough that I was at the right place at the right time. And Amy van Dersen and Monica Hannaway had just founded the first 
masters in existential coaching. So I joined at cohort two and I got in touch with the philosophy and all those existential questions and how you can incorporate them into your coaching. And I fell in love with it. And I knew the kind of positive attitude because I saw existential philosophy through a positive psychology lens. So I had learned about all the pillars of happiness and well-being and what it means to live a good life and character strength and hope and optimism and post-traumatic growth rather than stress. But then I had that framework of existentialism, which allowed me to explore the big questions in life. And it allowed me to help others explore the big questions in life. Who am I? Why are we here for? How can we be happy? How can I navigate life with all its challenges? How can I embrace my human condition? Is there a God? Is there free will? What does it all mean? Is there a point to any of this? So all of these big ones that kind of float under the surface of what somebody brings into the coaching space, I had an approach where I can actually help people to grapple with these big questions. And naturally, some traditional boundaries towards therapy, they will get breached with existential work. And quite naturally, the psychedelic endeavor of so many people of looking for a point or a meaning, exploring something at a great depth, you know, these existential questions, they pop up all over the space when people get in touch with psychedelics. For me, that immediately made sense as when I had my first psychedelic experiences, a lot of these questions opened up and there were some real insights. Obviously, this is my journey and it's quite different. I met this guy who just looked at his washing machine every weekend on acid for eight hours. So... <laughs> I think everybody uses it in a slightly different way. Yeah, yeah, spinning was beautiful, he said. <laughs> but there was no endeavor to grow from the experience. It was recreational. And that's not what coaching in psychedelics is about. I think coaching in psychedelics is for people who want to utilize the, the doors. They want to open the doors that psychedelics open and they want to go through it and explore what's behind and then go beyond that ex actual experience and look at how am I different? How's my life different now that I've experienced that. And now that I'm back in the real world, so to speak, or in that out of that state of consciousness, how can I make sense of that experience? What have I learned about myself? And what can I take from this in order to integrate into my life? So I've made all of these connections and I figured how to bring these together. And then I started asking questions and I've been talking to other coaches for a few years now. You know, there's all this research. How might we bring these two together? And then it took another year or two until I've actually wrote up an offer of how it might look like if I were to work with somebody. The first time I had a client who had an, a psychedelic experience and I wanted to make sense of it and integrate it, I was really surprised at how little different it was to my normal coaching, so to speak. And I was almost a little disappointed <laughs> because I thought it was going to be different somehow. I had uh, offered them something where, like, look, I'm, I'm still new in this space. You know, if you wanted to explore that, I'm exploring that too. We could explore it together. I knew it was safe enough uh, because that person was, was solid. The, the experience was a little while ago. We agreed if anything got opened up, that might be a space that is too vulnerable. There was a therapist on hold, so to speak. They knew where to go if we opened something up that coaching, the coaching space couldn't hold. But the content that they were bringing was weird. <laughs> you know, they, they, the experiences that somebody has on a psychedelic trip might be, we might not have a reference point for that. So listening to it just kind of um, leaves you in a more uncertain space than when you're listening to somebody talking about a dispute with their manager or, um, you know, something they've experienced with their partner or in a normal life where we have a reference point of what that might be like. So the listening was a bit different. But after that, after the first 
first 20, 30 minutes of, you know, uh, telling me what they've experienced. It was just normal coaching, you know, how to help somebody make sense of something that they've experienced and hold a space where the client can find their own answers to something. You know, you do some contracting in the beginning to figure out how, where do you, would you like to get to? What would you like to get out of this relationship? So uh, try to set goals as, as clearly as you can. But, you know, if there might be a bit vague as an existential coach, I'm okay with that. Sometimes we have conversations and things shift as a result of this conversation. And that's very much my experience when working with in psychedelic integration than when I was working with any other client. In a way, my coaching didn't change, but the content of the what the client brings, that changed a lot. So, um, and that's most of my work that I've been doing. Somebody had an experience and then they come to coaching to discuss that. I've also started working with people who had made a decision already to go have a psychedelic experience somewhere where that's legal. That's my condition. I don't condone illegal use of psychedelics. Um, as a professional, I can't condone illegal use of psychedelics. So if anybody asks me, you know, should I go do psychedelics? I say, I cannot possibly tell you that. If somebody comes to me and says, I've decided to to try out psychedelics for this and this and this endeavor, and I feel that, you know, they're not in a space where they're very vulnerable and might better work with a with a therapist or um, a mental health professional, I'd say, tell me about that. If they have made that decision and I feel that this is going to be, uh, th- this is safe, um, you know, they have the capacity to, to do that and they're going to do that in a legal retreat center, for example, in the Netherlands or somewhere else where it's not illegal, then I can hold that same space, that coaching space where um, I give them uh, time to think about, you know, what what might they get out of it, setting intentions, setting goals around this. You know, I won't teach them or tell them what the risks are. You know, I, I won't be sharing my knowledge necessarily. Um, some knowledge I think is useful to share, um, but we know relatively little um, about, for example, microdosing. There's so much, uh, the research still has to kind of catch up. Uh, we know enough to know that it's relatively safe uh, to uh, at least for LSD and uh, psilocybin. Um, the risk uh, psychopharmacology is very low. So that's all right with me, uh, but the client needs to make those decisions. I will, I'm not in a position as a coach to advise them to take a certain substance or a certain dose or do it in a certain space. You know, as a coach, I can, I, at least in my opinion, I think I can only hold that space where my client makes decisions for themselves. You know, there is a few books that uh, deliver good information as far as I'm concerned. But I would only ever as a coach put something on the table and say, well, here's some resources uh, that point you to other resources that point you to other resources. And I encourage my clients to do their research before they are in preparation for this kind of experience so that they can weigh the risks and that they can make a decision. They might come in with a decision, they might change that decision and that's okay. But if they still want to go ahead with it, then they can do that. But the responsibility is firmly with the client. As a coach, as a professional, I have to make sure that my client is in a position to make that decision, to make an informed decision. So this is where, as a professional, I need to be. I need to be a bit careful. If somebody comes to me and I don't feel they're in a position where they can give me informed consent to work, then I I cannot work with them. This is the kind of ethical framework that I guess every coach has to decide for themselves. So for someone new coming to you, how would you describe your practice? You know, are you an integration coach? Are you a coach that works with people not using psychedelics and people who are? How do you see your coaching practice? 
I don't work predominantly with psychedelics. It's more of, I don't, it's not a hobby. I, I can see working with psychedelics become a substantial part of uh, what I do professionally, I, but it's, it's not there. Um, a very l small amount of my clients are in that space. Uh, I founded the interest group in coaching and psychedelics of the Mind Foundation. We've ran this, uh, we ran a group on Facebook called Coaching and Psychedelics for, for a little while now. Uh, so we have some conversations in that space, but I don't describe myself as a psychedelic integration coach. But for me, that's in the category existential coaching, really, uh, or positive existential coaching, as I would uh, as I would call it. But at some point, I considered not to call it coaching at all and just calling it sitting down with Yannick, because with a lot of the a lot of the coaches that I work with, it became uh, this integrative approach um, that uses elements of coaching, elements of supervision, elements of training, elements of business mentoring. So I, I called that rocket supervision to give it another label, but. Like I think a good coach will draw on uh, different hats, different professional hats and wear them as they are appropriate. So when I have a consultation with somebody now, um, we agree, client and I, we're partnering, you know, and we agree on which of my professional hats would they like to have access to. Uh, sometimes that's more of the traditional existential coaching. Sometimes it's uh, more of a positive psychology approach and working with uh, happiness interventions or character strength or this kind of thing on some occasions is, well, I had a psychedelic experience or so I want to have one and I want to, to draw on, on some of these hats in order to uh, support me with that. In the psychedelic space, my hat is mostly my coaching hat. As soon as you put any form of suggestions on the table, you also take responsibility. And for me, that's a bit too hot to touch. I need my clients to make those decisions firmly themselves because I'm not going to take responsibility for what somebody puts into their body. These substances can be really powerful and the so-called bad trip or very challenging trips are a thing, you know, and anybody who's looked into that topic long enough will have come across accounts of trips that were resembling insanity or, you know, ego death, um, really difficult, uncomfortable experiences that people often have. You know, it can also be the most beautiful, profound, meaningful experience of your life, but it can also put you into a state where you think you're clinically insane. And as Sam Harris described it, uh, climbing up the mountain of pain and staying for a thousand years or something like that. So everybody has to make these decisions themselves. And that's one of my conditions. I'm not going to sway you in any direction. My clients need to be up for that and making those decisions themselves. That's really interesting because now that I'm thinking about it after you describe it, it's really still about the client, right? So if you name yourself as an integration coach, then therefore they kind of have to do spy into psychedelics to be able to work with you. So what I'm saying is people that claim themselves as integration coaches, kind of this client must take psychedelics in order to work with them. We're there for the client. It's up to the client. And so you're leaving it open, meaning that it still is for the client. Yeah, there's still ongoing debate whether a coach who's working with psychedelic integration needs to know a lot about psychedelics. From my own experiences, I think it's important that you kind of have some reference point to what they're bringing into the space. But I can also see that it might be almost in the way at times when you make certain assumptions about what your trip might have been like. There's certainly uh, parallels to people's experiences, but I think there's many coaches who coach 
CEOs and they've never been a CEO. Do you need to have had that experience in order to coach somebody going through that experience? And every CEO will have their own experience of what it's like to be a CEO and carry responsibility, making difficult decisions, things like that. But if coaching for you is a space that you create where your client gets to think and make decisions and you facilitate and you reflect back and you hold space and you're, you're partnering with your client, but they make the decisions and you facilitate that process, then similarly, you don't really need to have had the same experience. You just need to hold space where they can make sense of the experience. So I think this is where practitioners go far apart because there's so many coaches who have a strong training or mentoring element to their work who make a lot of suggestions or give advice or guide or direct. Other coaches, they're not. They're being more of the traditional puristic coaches. Um, they're more facilitating. And I think the more Uh, the less facilitating you are, the more responsibility you take for where your client is going, for better or for worse. And when it comes to psychedelics, I would just be very careful with taking responsibility for where your client is going. It's interesting you say that too. I feel like, I don't know about in the UK, but here in the United States, there's, I feel like there's two schools of coaching, like you just said. There's the coaches that are like, this is my program, this is what I do, you buy into this. And then there's coaches where I'm more on board. It's like, you... The, co the client comes to me and I help facilitate what, the, what they want to get. And I think that's been one of the blockers for me is seeing these other coaches that I don't see eye to eye with them. And it's like, I don't want to be perceived as that person that, you know, has the program, has the thing. And so, so within the UK, psychedelics are legal there. What are the rules around it? What are the challenges you face? It sounds like you say you really up to the client and then you're there for the client within whatever realm they want to explore. but How do you deal with the law? When I moved to the UK, um, they were selling mushrooms on the market in Camden. And I didn't really, I wasn't into any of that stuff at all. So I didn't really know what was going on. And now sometimes I look back, it's like, oh, it's, it's not too long ago. This was 2005, where, you know, you could sell them legally. Um, now that changed a lot. Uh, there's, there's history involved in, in terms of political space. Without getting too much into it, uh, it is illegal to grow. It is certainly illegal for any kind of coach to provide any kind of substance and there's no legal retreat centers in the UK. So for coaches, the only possibility to do anything legally is to, like, first of all, if somebody comes to you for integration, they've had an experience, legally, that's not an issue. You know, they come to you with an experience and you provide a space where they can make sense of an experience. If they would then tell you, and I'm, I will do this again next Saturday, and you're setting intentions and goals around that, then you're colluding with your client on doing an illegal activity. So that's not something you can do as a professional coach. If somebody, like, so the integration work is relatively, uh, that there's not really an issue or concern around it because people can talk to you about whatever they want. If you have a feeling that somebody might get harmed, then you have an obligation to, to intervene so that that harm is defined in some way. There is an assessment, an ethical assessment involved. I ask my clients to do this legally and there are some retreat centers with a good reputation. The UK Psychedelic Society does regular trips or used to do before the pandemic to legal retreat centers. But I make sure that my clients make decisions that keep them safe. If I have any concerns about their safety, I will bring that up with them. And I work with people who are generally resourceful and whole and not vulnerable. So those people that I work with, they are going to be in a position where they can make those decisions and they can make smart decisions. But ultimately, up to them. So when it comes to preparation, I think 
coaches need to be a bit more careful because that involves the client making decisions on where to do something. And I just need to make sure as a professional coach, that's all legal. Ultimately, my client will make their decisions on uh, what they will do and what they won't do, but I'm not going to be promoting or, or um, colluding or supporting my client in doing anything illegal. That's my line and I make that very clear to clients. And if they, if they then come back and they have had an experience, then we can start the integration work. I don't sit with clients. I know some coaches, they're also sitting with a client through the psychedelic experience. And I think that's a completely different thing to coaching. And we just talked about it in an earlier session. Um, first of all, I'm not considering doing any sitting for a client while they're having the experience. First of all, because I don't have experience enough in sitting with people. And also they would be tempted to have a conversation with their coach, you know, as they're having that experience, maybe not on the peak of the experience, but as it's kind of fading off, they might ask you some questions and I would probably want to engage in a conversation. And I know that while they're in a vulnerable state, I, I don't think that's useful. I mean, I'm not sure at this point, I'm just not sure whether that's going to be a valuable conversation. I, I don't think anybody should be doing any coaching while somebody's tripping. But at the same time, I had some conversations that were incredibly valuable while I was coming off a trip. I don't know. As a professional, it's very clear for me. I don't do any coaching while somebody's under the influence of a drug. I wouldn't coach somebody who's drunk. I wouldn't coach somebody who's super high on adrenaline. I wouldn't coach somebody who's on the in, under the influence of a psychedelic uh, or any other substance that like really changes their state of consciousness. As a person, I'm and as a scientist, I'm curious about uh, what might happen if you were to do that. But we don't know enough about that to keep a client safe. So at this point, for me, it's very clear. Integration, absolutely fine. Prep, I need to make very sure that this client is resourceful and whole and generally okay, not suffering from a mental illness of some sort. Um, difficult to draw the line sometimes, you know, uh, at what point do you become depressed? Uh, I think these are the same rules that apply to any coaching, you know. So um, any coach would draw a line somewhere between at what point of feeling a bit depressed does it become depression and they're better off with a therapist? At what point of being a bit moody and going up and down, at what point does it become a bipolar disorder? You know, and at what point is that better for that person to work not with a coach, but with a mental health professional? So in that sense, again, I, I don't think it's any different from normal coaching, but I think the stakes are much higher because that person is potentially going to take a psychedelic with which can exacerbate or like really deepen that kind of experience or potentially trigger an existing predisposition. Professional coaches just need to be careful when they doing work with preparation. And at the moment, I don't touch the space in between. I, I offer to be around in the vicinity if somebody wanted to go to a retreat center in the Netherlands, for example, and they want their coach around, perhaps the next day, they can have a coaching session on site. So if anything were to happen, they know that somebody that they trust can be there within five minutes. I think that that's a service I offer, but I, I haven't done that yet, actually, because it just people didn't, didn't ask for it. It's also quite expensive to fly a new coach uh, into a different country um, just yeah. to kind of have them around. Let's say psychedelics were completely legal. Would you feel any differently? Would you want to sit with clients? It sounds like you don't. That you really see the space with coaching and, and being in a vulnerable state as different. What would your utopian coaching practice look like? Well, if it were legal, we would start doing a lot of research and look at, you know, very systematically at um, what do we need, what, what's happening 
when somebody gets gets coached on psychedelics. But like, I mean, even with legal substances, we need to pass stringent ethic uh, committees. So you can't just like give somebody something. I mean, even if you you want to research people who had a drink, you know, you, you need to be very careful and it's very complicated to get approval for these kind of studies. In my ideal world, we would have already done 20, 30 years of research and we would have developed methodologies on what would be a good way to move through that. What I can imagine is that you would have a good relationship with a sitter. You would have a the coach and the person who would sit with a client would talk to each other with the permission of the client, obviously, so that the sitter may take notes or you know write certain things down that seem to be significant uh, words that the client might have said or repeated, interesting situations or any significant moments could then be communicated to the coach and we could start the coaching conversation based on, on some of these insights that sometimes the clients forget. I could see how a coach could also be a sitter, but I think they would need it to be very boundaried and make it very clear why they're there for and what their role is. Pretty much all sitters I've talked to uh, said very clearly, don't interfere with the experience. I mean, you're there to hold space. You know, maybe reassure them that they're they're doing fine and it's it's okay and you know they're doing great and they're not at any risk of harm. But it's a very different thing to coaching. And personally, I would probably be tempted to coach, and I don't want to coach. I would want to do that after. Part of me would want to sit through it and kind of see it and experience it. It it might add something to the coaching if you can hold that boundary very clearly. And I just don't have any experience with sitting while being the coach, so that's not something I would do. I'm sure others will and are successfully doing so. Cool almost a multidisciplinary approach. You have the sitter, you have the coach, the client, and that's a really interesting way to look at it. Are you ever interested in trying to be a coach and a sitter just to see what the experience is like if it was allowed? Well, I would be lying if I wouldn't say I'm not interested. It's not on the cards professionally. So maybe at some point in the future, I'll, I'll do a training in sitting and I'll, I'll find a way to gain the necessary experience of sitting with somebody professionally. And I might combine the skills that I have in coaching and the skills that I have in sitting and combine them. For me personally, I mean, maybe it's also part of my character is I want to do things properly. I don't want to take a risk when it comes to working with powerful substances, just as such. I, I would want to gain sufficient experience in sitting before I would attempt to combine the two or offer them at the same time. So I live in Oakland, California, which is the second city in the United States to decriminalize psychedelic plants. So that includes sales and all sorts of things. However, it's still illegal on a state and federal level. So I just feel like I know a lot of sitters. I know a lot of people that are kind of combining lots of different ways of doing it. And so I feel like it's almost normalized to me that you would maybe mash the two together. And so it is great hearing your perspective because I think you're right. We have to be super safe. They're very powerful substances. Where I hear the opinions go very far apart is uh, when where's that line between coaching and therapy? And in a way, I've been discussing that uh, since I started coaching. As I said, I'm, I was always interested in going that little bit deeper. So we're still discussing among existential coaches where that line is between coaching and therapy. There's some good frameworks. There's some good starting points. You know, the coaching is more about surface level change, where therapy is more deep-seated change. It's a good starting point, not necessarily true, but there's certainly a trend in that. Similarly with coaches working with people who are resourceful and whole versus therapists who tend to work with people who are broken or unable to cope. It's certainly not always true, but it's a good starting point. Also, the notion that coaches often work with the present and the future and therapists work more with the past and the present. Certainly not always true, 
but all three together can give you a, a more of an idea of what the difference between coaching and therapy is. But ultimately, every practitioner needs to, what I always call, frame their space. Sometimes you frame your space firmly in the performance coaching in organizations area, and maybe you work with stress reduction and communication styles, or you work with using mindfulness Some practitioners frame their space very much in the therapeutic. I work with bereavement and I work with autism or I work with post-traumatic stress. You need to frame that space and offer your services within that. Here's what I can and here's what I can't do. Here's what I want to do and here's what I don't want to do. You know, So I always say you need to be willing and able to provide the service that you're offering to that client. Just because a client comes with a, an ale, like a pain or something they want to work on doesn't mean that you have to To provide that service. If somebody comes and they say, well, I'm very depressed, I want to uh, you know, move and find a new house, then you can use some coaching techniques potentially to help that person move house. If it's not about the uh, resolving the root of their depression, which is much better suited in, in a therapy room, then perhaps a coach can provide tremendous value. If somebody's just lost somebody, I can have potentially have a very uh, effective existential conversation about the meaning of endings and how they relate to that to then move forward with their life. But chances are that if somebody's gone through a bereavement, they might not be able to engage in that kind of conversation to move forward. Chances are they just have to process that and make sense of it. I may or may not have the skills to have that conversation with them. But every coach, every therapist, every practitioner needs to have that conversation with themselves and be able to communicate what their framework is and at what point there might be a line. And when that line comes, when they're using psychedelics or when uh, in the psychedelic space, I think that line gets crossed much more easily than in coaching as usual, if you wanted to call it like that. It's much more likely that somebody comes back from such an experience and some doors opened into a space where maybe as a coach, you have nothing to do there. You know, maybe that's something they need to work with somebody else. So I think it's so important that coaches who work in the psychedelic space have a solid referral network and uh, a whole range of therapists available at their fingertips uh, that they can refer clients to if, if that should be necessary. You generally work with people who are resourceful and whole, as I said, who are generally okay. And sometimes for people who are generally okay, they open a door and there's a, a world of pain behind it. And they didn't know, you know, and uh, at that point, maybe it's better to refer them. Maybe they just have a really pleasant experience and they have their next amazing business idea, you know, that also has happened. And you just never quite know where the psychedelic experience will lead you, where you will end up, what you will end up knowing or experiencing. So I think as a coach, when somebody, when you open that space and somebody has an experience and they come back and they've opened all these doors and they talk about it now, just need to be uh, very aware of what they're bringing and at what point you will need to, at, at what point, not you will need to, at what point is the client better off working with somebody else? You know, I think that's the ultimate line. Do you think there's a space for maybe, again, a multidisciplinary approach with a sitter, a coach and a therapist that all can communicate and come up, you know, help the client together? Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a fan of working in collaboration with people. I've, I've started that with uh, other coaches so that there's like a ping pong approach, so to speak, where a client has two coaches, one who works on the existential foundations and the other one works with performance and behavior and accountability. You know, one kind of uh, what, what's what drives me and the other one, how can I get shit done? I can imagine a similar, um, and I, I've worked in the past, um, not in a psychedelic space, um, but I've, I've worked with some therapists in parallel. And I love it when 
when a co when a client, a coaching client comes to me and it says, I'm, I'm also working with a therapist, is that an issue? And I'm like, no, this is great, you know, because we have a safety net for th when things open up that, you know, we feel this is not really a coaching issue right now, or this is not really a coaching thing. Uh, they can take that to the therapist. This is amazing. So yes, I would, I would love to see more coaches and therapists partnering up. Have you ever had a conversation with someone's therapist while you were working with a client? Yeah, I was amazed at how eager uh, some of the clients were. That was like, oh yeah, you can talk to my therapist. And they tend to appreciate that. We just need to work in a three-way container so that uh, that we're all aware of, of what we're doing there. Setting something up as a three-way relationship, that would be amazing. I haven't done that yet. So from the very beginning that you would say, okay, coach, therapist, and client meet up on a three-way Zoom. Then you you discuss the framework of what we're doing here. And at what point would you, would you go see one or the other and, you know, would coach and uh, therapist then check in regularly or, you know, would you, how, how would that look like? I mean, the, the possibilities are endless. Yeah, as a nurse, I mean, a lot of what I do is, is work with a multidisciplinary team with a neurologist, neurosurgeon, everyone and coming up to help the patient in the best way. And so it would make sense in this space to be able to have a team approach for the client. And yeah, it sounds like a really amazing opportunity and it sounds like it's worked for you or work for the client, work for your client. It, it's, it feels safer when you know that your client uh, has a therapist that is just on the other end of a phone line or that they're already scheduled to meet regularly. It does make you feel safer as a coach. What is the stigma like in the UK? Do you feel like you've had to come out as someone who works with psychedelics? Do you feel like it's very normal in your society? How do your friends and family, like your community feel about you do? About a year and a half ago, I think now, we've, uh, I've decided to put an event on the first online symposium on coaching and psychedelics with a colleague of mine who was very unapologetically out there, you know, um, and she's, I came more from a cautious scientific perspective and she came in from an activist perspective. We gelled quite well. We really like each other. So we put on this event and as I was about to post that up on Facebook, I did definitely hesitate. You know, it's like, who's going to see this? Am I going to be out? myself. There's definitely uh, opinions around and associations and predispositions about preconceptions about what does it mean? What do psychedelics mean? If somebody says, you know, I'm working as a coach in the psychedelic space that can brand you with certain people. My supervisor very clearly said some organizations will not hire you if they find out that uh, you are involved in that kind of activity. I think so. We need to ask ourselves some questions around how might that affect your career or your your relationships. I think people who know and respect me, they will know that I'm a curious mind and I have always explored space and I've asked deep questions. So it would probably make a lot of sense for people knowing that been working in that space. But there was certainly a concern. I'm married in a, a bit more conservative family and I might move to Mexico in a couple of years. So there's, in a way, that's where a lot of that kind of culture comes from. Uh, but also there's, there's people who think more conservatively. And so I, I was somewhat concerned, but at the end, I think we need to show up authentically and do what we're passionate about and what we're interested in. And I think the potential in this space is just enormous. And anybody who I'd have a conversation with, I can come from a scientific perspective. And I think this is something I've, I've learned from my, from my contacts in, in Berlin on the Mind Foundation as well. As soon as you take a science perspective on this and you're coming from an academic route and you're saying, here's the evidence to support that it's useful to explore more and create more knowledge. And I believe I have enough academic grounding to make a solid argument that the work I'm doing is, is safe, useful, and worth exploring. So in that sense, 
I know some people will probably judge me and I would not have a chance to have a conversation with them. Uh, fair play, you know, you, you, that's okay with me. But if somebody is surprised and they would ask me about it, I think we would have a really interesting conversation. And I might still not agree that, you know, that is something worthwhile pursuing, maybe based on information or misinformation or, you know, as uh, the war on drugs has been raging and there's uh, still uh, in a lot of people's minds, it's the devil's drug that makes people go crazy. But I think the science very clearly says something else. And that's where I choose to get my knowledge from. Do you want to be an advocate for psychedelic medicine? It sounds like you kind of maybe don't, that you want to allow people to come to their own conclusions. But do you feel that you do kind of want to stick up for psychedelics and, and help people understand that maybe? Yeah, I think the, the evidence that uh, it can be a, a tremendously powerful treatment for, for disorders and uh, illnesses is there and it's growing. So um, uh, what I would like to see is more research so that we can be absolutely sure that, you know, this is the power that lies within using that within a coaching framework. I wouldn't say that I'm an advocate for... St- I, no, I think I can say I'm an advocate for psychedelic medicine. I think uh, it's uh, undoubtedly so much potential there. And we don't know quite enough yet to give everybody psychedelics. There's plenty of people who shouldn't take psychedelics. I'm convinced of that. So we need to create a bit more knowledge. But when it comes to coaching, it's not about general knowledge. It's not about trying to find the truth with a capital T. It's not about generalizing uh, what is and isn't good for people. Coaching is about creating a space where people can make decisions and choices. So that's why as a scientist, I'm an advocate of doing a lot more research into coaching and psychedelics and psychedelics as a medicine. Absolutely. As a coach, I am not an advocate. I'm an advocate for people to make choices that will better their lives. And I think psychedelics have the potential to do that. I would encourage anybody to explore the potential that their life is offering and that life is offering. So in that sense, there's a there's a difference between me, the scientist and the academic and me, the coach, and then there's me, Yannick. So you're not an advocate on a personal level, but are you an advocate on a societal level, on a, on a fight for it becoming legal so we can do research? I think we need research. And I I think the evidence is so clear that everything speaks for the potential. And I I think it's important to explore that. So yes, absolutely. I can only see it go in one direction, uh, which is that it's going to become an accepted medicine. It might take a while. The process to have MDMA, which uh, is still in the family of psychedelics, as an accepted treatment method, started in 1986 when Rick Doblin under MAPS first sent off a form and said we we, we need to be looking into this. So it took 30 years or so for it to go in phase three trials. When we look at coaching, I think Henrik Jungabler, he said, here's an effort to look into coaching and psychedelics um, on an academic level, but he reckons it's going to be another 10 years or so until we have some, some more solid findings. It's incredibly difficult to study coaching as it is because it's so ill-defined and there's such a broad range of what it is and isn't. And it's so dependent on the relationship between coach and client that it's difficult to find out which kind of methodology might be more powerful. So there's huge methodological flaws when we're trying to research it. That's why um, I've moved a little bit away from the science of coaching because it's a very individual one-to-one thing. Um, I value it. It's important to look into it and create arguments for it to gather some data. But when it comes to coaching, it's a one-to-one thing. It's giving a client a space where they can make decisions and choices about their life and they take responsibility. That's my existential philosophy. You know, we take responsibility for our choices. 
I want to create a space where people can powerfully change their lives. And it's been shown that uh, both experientially and also from the research that psychedelics can offer that to people to powerfully change their lives and gain new insights from a completely new perspective. You know, that, that saying that when you step back um, a step and look at your situation from the outside. Psychedelics often means you're, you know, going into orbit and looking down not just a few steps, but like getting a completely fresh perspective on your life and how you're living it. So the potential of that is amazing. You just need to keep people safe. That's it. And I think when coaching clients will know how to keep themselves safe and they know best. And if I ever feel that somebody's not safe, I'll say something, you know, I'll challenge them on that. If they still want to do something that I would deem is unsafe, I will have to reconsider whether I want to keep supporting them on that road. I know you're going to say it's up to the client and it's not, but I'm curious what your personal views are on the different psychedelic substances and drugs, you know, MDMA versus psilocybin versus LSD, DMT. Do you have a preference or not? for yourself and not for your clients, but do you think there's any, I, mean, I guess my question is on, on the different substances, what do you think their use is with coaching? Yeah, so I've, I've talked to some coaches who said uh, they only work with psilocybin because it's relatively short, like a couple of hours, three, four, five hours. Acid LSD can last a very long time, but it depends what the client wants, depends how much experiences they've had, what they are maybe familiar with. MDMA comes with more of a connection, but also there's a depletion of uh, serotonin afterwards, so you might have that kind of come down. Even though the come down is interestingly not so severe when it's used in a therapeutic setting, but the, uh, then People with heart problems need to be very careful with MDMA. I think this is an area where I, as a coach, feel I know a lot of stuff, but I don't feel I know enough to give any kind of suggestions or advice. I know some coaches working in this space, they're happy to offer their knowledge and they guide clients much more in the preparation stage. They would share their experiences and other people's experiences. There's a couple of, of sources that from institutions that I trust that I would point them to. I would uh, send them to to look at MAPS resources. Psychedelic Explorer's Guide by, by James Fadiman is a really good resource. There's a couple of resources that I would recommend people start with when uh, when they want to educate themselves. But ultimately, they need to educate themselves. Um, again, I'm not going to recommend anything. I'm not going to listen to a client and then say, oh, I think for your particular context, uh, you know, ayahuasca would be really useful. And I would recommend that. I wouldn't do that. Well, that was one of my questions, too, is how do you educate yourself and how to become the most prepared? The classic coach response would be, what do you think? <laughs> Where might you start such a journey? You know, and then the client might say, oh, I might Google it. What would you find? Maybe we do it now. Or like, uh, how would they how would they ascertain what are good sources and not so good sources? Who might they know who they could talk to and uh, how reliable that is? You know, how do they generally learn and get their information? You know, somebody might watch a lot of YouTube videos. Another person might go to the library. Somebody else might have a lot of conversations. It really depends on the person, how they, how they choose to get their knowledge. If somebody brings me knowledge that goes against what I know and it feels dangerous, if they say, oh, um, I've, I've heard about this Iboga thing and you know I hear it's like 100% safe you know then as a coach I have an obligation to say that's that's not what I heard that's really interesting tell me about that <laughs> you know um, here's something that I've heard or here's a source that I've read where that pointed out some of the risks but throughout that kind of process you get to know your client you get to know how your client creates knowledge and how they learn and how they challenge
challenge themselves. Somebody might question a lot and somebody might be very risk averse and somebody else might be quite bold. These are all things that a good coach will reflect back and uh, offer it out to people so that your client can make better decisions. But yeah, again, I, I'd be very cautious to recommend or, or suggest anything. Well, and that's educating your clients. What would you recommend other coaches, how they should educate themselves? There's some information out there on generally how psychedelics work. Uh, I mean, obviously, if I come from an academic perspective, I would turn to science and uh, leading academics in this field. The Imperial College Center, Robert Card Harris, and then Stan Groff did a lot of work in, in psychedelics, using it for growth and therapy. So I would look to the institutions that I trust. I, I like reading books. <laughs> so that would be something that, that I use uh, to kind of educate myself. But I think as long as they seek information and they develop an attitude of a, of healthy critical respect and curiosity that somebody doesn't just you know take all the information but you know they're actively encouraged in the coaching space to question what they learn and to build um, a, a knowledge base that will allow them to make these decisions which are important decisions and not just kind of jump into an experience like that like not encourage them to have the respect but like if you instill a sense of healthy respect, towards uh, what they're about to embark on without, you know, necessarily scaring them about it. But like, I think if somebody doesn't feel good about it because there might be a risk attached, maybe it's not for them because there, there is some risk. The physical risk with, uh, with SN psilocybin is, is very low. Like there's no lethal dose that we have found yet. You know, it might trigger something. It, it might feel very uncomfortable, but it could also be the best experience of your life. You know, you, you just don't really know. How important is it, do you think, to have your own psychedelic experiences to work with clients in this field? I think it allows you to relate to your client that bit more. Most CEOs work with coaches who have been CEOs or who have worked with a lot of CEOs. So it's a similar thing. Like We tend to hire coaches from the space in which we are operating in. It doesn't mean that somebody who's coming in from the outside cannot hold a really good space for you. I think when it comes to preparation work, it would be a natural choice to work with somebody who's had experiences and who has knowledge. But you need to contract carefully with your coach on how they will be working with you. So if, if there's a client out there looking for a coach to ask your coach to what extent they're willing to give you advice um, and guide you. Um, do uh, Coaches should uh, you know contract with their clients and tell them to what extent they're willing to take on responsibility or when they do give some advice or guidance to what extent they can trust that kind of advice and guidance because it's easy to put somebody into an expert position and then kind of follow what they tell you. That can get you into some trouble when that kind of stuff doesn't work out. Imagine you pay somebody a large amount of money to guide you through a psychedelic experience and then you have a really shitty time <laughs> you know you might want your money back uh, what, what, what's that going to be like for you as a coach or uh, you know in America people like to sue each other what happens if there's some really well-intentioned advice that works for most people most of the time or has worked for all people all the time so far and then there's this one person that it just doesn't which might happen so how are you going to deal with that I think it makes sense to have had some experiences, but if you are the kind of coach who holds space and facilitates a process of somebody making sense of an experience, I don't think you necessarily need to have done psychedelics. If a normal coach who doesn't have any experiences sits down with one of their clients and in their fifth session, the client comes in and said, by the way, uh, last weekend I've had this psychedelic experience and this and this happened and you know, I've, I've had these insights and you know, I'm not, I'm, I've been 
asking some questions about who I am and how I live my life. I think most coaches will work with that. They will say, tell me about it. You know, these are important questions for the coaching space. Um, I don't think any coach would reject that because, oh no, uh, this is like an illegal experience and an illegal experience. And I, I, I have to refer you to somebody else. You know, I, I think a good coach will say that these, are, these sound like really important questions. Would you like to make sense of them? Do you think they should be illegal? What is your opinion on... Um, yeah, yeah. Personally, I, I think uh, I think they should be legal. Uh, in Portugal, they've uh, decriminalized all drugs. I think most of the most of the experiments that have been done where where drugs were legal, um, they haven't led to the to the effects that uh, everybody seems to be scared of. Uh, the war on drugs clearly doesn't work. People have a natural tendency to want to change their state of consciousness. They drink, they smoke, they uh, get adrenaline into their body through sports or any other form of kind of excitement. We screw with our brain chemistry all the time. Kids spin around in circles until they're dizzy. You know, it, it seems to be a natural uh, urge or a natural desire to change our state of consciousness. States of flow and positive psychology. Stephen Kotler does some great work around the Flow Genome Project. I think states, uh, said, like heightened state of consciousness or uh, changed states of consciousness is something that, that people crave. I think it's much safer when they're decriminalized. I mean, obviously, uh, there's some really, really dangerous substances that are highly addictive. You know, if my children were to uh, get into crack or cocaine or uh, methamphetamine, then uh, I would try to do whatever I can to keep them off that. But as Sam Harris said, uh, Sam Harris said at some point, if if his daughter would live their lives and never having tried any psychedelic substance, he felt that they would probably miss out on something or a wonderful opportunity to you know, see the world from a different angle. So there's uh, definitely some truth to that and i think people need to make their own decisions and education is very important yeah probably wait a while i've waited for a long time before i tried psychedelics i was uh, much much older and i valued that experience a lot more because i wasn't so young and my brain was still developing because there is some research that while the brain is still developing you can really screw with some with some brain chemistry it's interesting you say that I didn't try anything um, besides cannabis until my 30s as well, or to my 30s. And But I was at a MAPS conference and Rick Doblin was saying that he felt that MDMA was almost like a bar mitzvah for his children. And when they when his children turned 13, he offered them to do MDMA with him and they all refused. And he said, you know, the best way to get your kids not to do drugs is to offer them drugs. But scientifically, MDMA is quite safe for a young brain. I don't think doing it a lot and definitely not off the streets and, you know, where there's other things mixed in. But it is really interesting because I personally am with, with you that I think it is something for an older brain that you, you do need to know who you are and kind of where you are in life to be able to deal with the challenges it brings up. There was a client who approached me who's experienced ego death uh, on an acid trip when he was 14. And uh, I'm like, wow, that will have quite an effect on you. And it sounded like a very positive effect, but like it certainly uh, changes people. So young. It's just interesting. And then, you know, for Rick Dublin to say, like, you know, I offered this to my children at 13. I was um, way older when I drank beer. <laughs> what are you excited about for the future, the future of psychedelics, for the future of coaching in psychedelics, for yourself personally? 
I'd be really excited about better training. Um, I'm excited about creating some sort of methodology of how this might work. I'm, I'm excited about more people who are very ethically minded and academically minded and sharing knowledge. Uh, I'm excited about sharing resources and experiences. And this is partly why I'm so excited about the, the interest group in coaching and psychedelics because there's practicing coaches exchanging um, knowledge and exchanging views because it's been something that's not really been talked about. People hold held back. Uh, they don't want to be seen as working in that space. Now that the science is there, um, it's much more accepted. It's much more okay to go out and talk about psychedelics without risking your career or being labeled a hippie. Now that, you know, micro, like people in, in Silicon Valley, microdose and like this, people like Tim Ferriss and Sam Harris talk about psychedelics a lot. There's a lot of research funds, uh, whole leadership groups do ayahuasca somewhere uh, on their vision quest. It's exciting that people talk about it because I believe that we can learn stuff when we talk about things. I mean, this is the profession I'm in. And the more we exchange our views and the more we talk and argue and debate and uh, exchange resources, exchange concerns and criticize each other, then open a space where we can come together and respectfully um, you know, disagree. The whole field grows and it grows exponentially fast. What do you wish you had known when you were starting out? Um, what advice would you give to someone starting out? I wish I would have had a, a list of other people who are working in this space. I, I wish I would have had a reading list somewhere where all of these information are kind of combined. I wish that I would have found other coaches who are kind of openly talking about that. And I guess that that's why we, we started this group as well. Um, I've just today, just earlier, I, um, somebody in, a, in our drop-in sessions, we have these bi-weekly drop-in sessions for, for coaching and psychedelics. By the time you're hearing this, I hope they're still running and they will continue to do so. But uh, somebody asked, she said she's curious about uh, the websites of coaches who are practicing or who are offering uh, this kind of work to clients. And so we, we shared a few of ours in the group, but then uh, if you Google, there's a uh, two pages or so of uh, psychedelic integration coaches out there. So I just kind of compiled them in a Google document and added a form where people can add other coaches who are practicing in the space. I'll do that as soon as we get off this call. I'm going to create a link that's called bit.ly uh, slash psychedelic coaching directory. Uh, bit.ly slash psychedelic coaching directory. I'm going to create that shortcut and, and, and get it to that form. And then people who know somebody who's a coach and works in the psychedelic space, they can add them. Or if you are a coach working in the psychedelic space, you can add your own details. But, uh, then perhaps over time, we can create a database of coaches who uh, legally work in uh, psychedelic integration. And then maybe we can reach out and learn from each other, not just as practitioners, but also clients will have an address where they can you know filter people by what kind of training and qualifications would they like them to have? You know, what kind of price range are they looking for? Um, you know, where in the world is somebody and might be able to support them in person after this whole uh, COVID thing is over. So I think that's a good start. And I think that's something I wish I would have had more, more touch points between, between people who are working in this space because they generally are quite approachable. Sounds like you almost want to start your own coaching, psychedelic coaching association. I could see that in the future. Um, the moment I can't really take on any more work, but I can certainly uh, see how this interest group might become uh, an association or some form of body. But I think it'll be a long time before we can bring psychedelic integration coaches or psychedelic coaches together under one banner, agreeing on the kind of framework that this should be practiced under. I think there's too much autonomy and such a broad range. I mean, it's difficult enough to get coaching together under one banner. 
So it'll be, it'll be interesting. What, what I would like is a space where people talk, you know, and I don't need people to accept any rules or any framework. Um, I just want to bring people together and talk about their different views and their different experiences so that everybody can make up their own mind. I think that's very much an existential perspective on, on this kind of thing. There's no one right way. It's whatever. Yeah. I mean, we all need to make those decisions. How you practice in that space is something that's deeply personal. And while you might be guided and there will be frameworks in the future that says, this is how you do a psychedelic integration coaching. And this is the kind of method that is proven or whatever, um, how to do it most effectively. But ultimately, we can only take those suggestions or uh, you know pieces of research or opinions or guidelines or frameworks and we question them. And we look into them, we try to understand them, and then we make our own decision. Is there something that is valuable that I can integrate into the way that I practice? Is there, is there something I reject strongly, which will help me to have a better understanding of what I think is right? Um, if we are faced with something that we think is wrong, we are one step closer to figuring out how to do it, uh, by how not to do it. So, you know, that's why it's good. It's good to, to put your stuff out there and let other people grapple with it. And some will disagree and some will agree. And then you find the client for whom that works. I know that there'll be a client who will want their coach to tell them which substance to take and which retreat center to go to. Uh, then I'm just not the right coach for them. And that's totally okay. You know, um, somebody else might be willing to take on that responsibility and they might, they might be doing their clients a favor. But like, it, it, there's so many different people out there. So that's why it's important to talk to each other and for clients to talk to a couple of different coaches and have a conversation and ask their coaches, how do you coach? You know, what's your process? How much are you going to be doing for me? What can I expect from you? What do you expect from me? You know, these are important questions that coach and client need to talk about. Yeah, it sounds so exciting to hear, you know, to have a group of coaches together discuss and art, maybe even argue and talk about it. And then I realized maybe that's what this podcast gets to do a little bit. Exactly. And I would really like to see, um, you know, us continue doing this and talk to a range of other practicing coaches. If you're listening to this and you're a practicing psychedelic coach, uh, do get in touch with us. It would be nice to, to have a conversation with other people who, who work with clients and how they see their practice and what do they do? What might be your methodology or what, what do you agree or disagree with what, what I just thrown into the room? So I'm, I'm excited to have a, a whole series uh, of talking about coaching and psychedelics and uh, get that out to whoever cares to listen. That's actually perfect timing. Those are all my questions. <laughs> Great. Well, it, it felt like a good time to end. Thank you. Thank you for, for doing this. And I hope this is going to be the start of something beautiful and we're going to create a bunch of knowledge together. Um, oh yeah, um, maybe just to finish off, if you look for Coaching and Psychedelics on Facebook, you'll find our group, The Mind Foundation. Um, if you Google that, it's a, it's the Mind Foundation for, uh, for I think, psychedelic practice. I'm not sure exactly what they're... They're in Berlin. And if you Google it, uh, you'll find their forum and their website. So you can become a member and join our interest group in Coaching and Psychedelics. You can email me, uh, 42 at existential.coach, and you'll find my psychedelic offer on existential.coach slash psychedelic coaching. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. If anybody agrees, disagrees, uh, you know, we have a conversational space. I believe in everything what I just said. I think it's important to have these conversations and I'm, I'm, always, uh, I'm always delighted to hear from anybody with any opinions, comments, observations. And if you want more talking about coaching podcasts, we'll probably have this on YouTube and we'll put this out on audio in some form. There's an, a Buzzsprout, uh, Spotify and Apple podcasts. Uh, there's a podcast I run with two of my colleagues called Talking About Coaching, which is the 
the kind of normal talking about coaching where we address uh, questions from coaches. But there's a long form version of this, which is this kind of conversation. So Google it. If not, let me know and I'll tell you where it is. Thank you, Heather. Thank you.